Yeah, you guys, if you're new, I'm, again, I'm Andrew, one of the pastors. And like I said, I, I, we've taken, my family and I, after about six years of just kind of being in the grind, we took almost a full month to just enjoy time with family. We camped all around Oregon and Northern California, and it was incredible. So I just have to say, I miss you guys a ton, but I'm so grateful to you giving my family this time off. You guys support us and make sure the ministry continues here. So it was a sacrifice, but our team just did a fantastic job. Can we put it together for the team who held it down while I was away? Uh, Phil, my longtime mentor, taught for us, of course, Brooke, and also Sam. Many others of you filled in in some really key ways. And so, of course, I am very uh, dispensable, but this church is all about the kingdom of Jesus, and he is not. And so, um, anyways, it was just an absolute thrill. I will tell you one little short takeaway that we had. Aside from just like making a bunch of memories, and I slept in a lot, and I put my phone in a drawer, and I didn't text people back, and it was uh, incredible. I got bored, actually, which hasn't happened in years, um, and read for pleasure, all kinds of good stuff. But um, one thing that I learned um, after sort of being in sort of, I'll just call it a pastoral grind for many years, is um, when I didn't have a gathering to lead or a meeting to have or whatever, it was just me and my family and the Lord, nothing to lead. I, I think something in me was reawakened and restored, that above everything, I'm just a son. I'm, I'm a son of God, and uh, I, I get to connect with him in that beautiful way, and so I, I just feel so re-energized, and I missed teaching the word. You guys know it's like, I had like a major passion of mine, so um, I'm thrilled to be back. Um, we have just a couple more weeks. Some of you are laughing like, yeah, we are not surprised, man. Like, you are so into what we do here, and I am. So a couple more weeks in the letter to the Galatians. We've been in Galatians uh, for about five months, and we have three weeks left to finish up the series. So would you please stand with me one more time uh, for the reading of Scripture? Father, we thank you that um, we are your people and that you are king enthroned and you are indispensable. You are the one that we are all following after. And so we just, again, we just ask that this time that we share would not be wasted, but that like the word of God is true, that that um, it does not return void. So what it is you want to accomplish today, I would pray that you would do it in Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And if anyone thinks that they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Interesting. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So um, hopefully by now you are convinced that this letter to the Galatians is an amazing challenge from the Spirit for us to preserve unity in the church when politics, culture wars, and theological difference threaten to break us up. And now here towards the end, we're in the practical section, the practical strategy. How can we actually be successful 
and forging loyalty and unity across the wide spectrum of brothers and sisters in Christ? That's the question of the day. Now, when it comes to uh, things like unity, things like this, goals without strategy, they're just a wish. Goals without strategy are just a wish. We hope when we go through the crucible of life together, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it, that we, uh, our bonds in Christ will hold us strong. But in reality, without strategy, our unity will survive maybe like a day beyond our willpower, right? And some of y'all have tons of willpower, years of it stored up, but others of us run out quicker. So what we need is we need wise, spirit-inspired strategy. We need the truth, which is why we spent like a good four weeks slowly working our way through the fruit of the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Remember, walk by the Spirit and the character of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things will begin to grow out of you over your lifetime. Now, that's not by wave of a magic wand. You know that. That is strategy. That is strategy. When we replace, when you replace your habits, your rhythms, your lifestyle, again, the stuff that we inherited from our host culture, the Pacific Northwest, 21st century, and instead we replace that with walking instead in step with the Spirit. We are remade, we are transformed, we are renewed in the language of Colossians from the inside out, and we possess the character of Jesus. Now it's way more to there's way more to it than just that like. 30 minute or 30 second hit or whatever, we have to deal with like the lies that we've been believing and none of this happens overnight. It takes a lot of time and a lot of practice. And if you want to know more about that, please come out to Riverbend at Night tonight where we go deeper into spiritual practice. But all of that said, this is a promise from God in the scriptures, Galatians 5. If you keep in step with the Spirit, you will possess the fruit of the Spirit. So here's the continuation for today. Not by accident, all of those fruit, they preserve unity. They do. And it's this brilliant strategy that we can't take credit for. It's the scripture and it's the spirit of God working together. But we need to hold on to that idea that the fruit of the spirit, they actually bring the unity. They are a part of the strategy that Paul has for the church, that Jesus has for his church. And all of what we're going to talk about throughout the remainder of this series, assumes that you're you're already tracking and you're already sort of bought into that strategy or the beginning of that strategy from chapter five. Are you with me so far? Awesome. Okay, so chapter six, verse one says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the spirit should restore that person gently. All right, it can be uncomfortable to talk about sin. We don't even like labeling things as sin, much less like confronting it in ourselves or others. Why? Well, we are the snowflake generation. You know this, right? Like we see ourselves as like super innocent. We're very unique. No one in the world is exactly like me. And we can very easily turn into a puddle, okay? Now, the fact that some of you have a hard time accepting that and laughing and smiling at that proves my point, okay? It's true that a lot of this letter has been about redeeming a toxic culture of religious pride and finding fault in others. That's definitely in here. In fact, that's kind of the main idea. And lots of Christians use scriptures like these as an excuse to have a critical spirit in their heart. That's not good, obviously. But that said, there will be faults. I have them and you have them that really do need correcting. 
And part of the inner workings of a healthy church, a healthy community, is for those with genuine spiritual insight to guide us, to guide us away from a life of sinful patterns and behavior and into the way of Jesus. Not from a critical spirit, but from a gentle and from a gracious one. Think about it. A healthy family talks about their problems honestly. A healthy family does that. A good leader is going to call you up to a life that's worthy of your calling in the language of Ephesians chapter 5. So that's our first action item for today if you're taking notes, which if you are not taking notes, maybe you ought to. We have journals in the back. That that way you can hopefully retain a little bit more of this. But um, uh, the first takeaway is this. Restore people. Restore people who are off track. So we need to get to the bottom of this because Paul's word choice is super important. There's a condition, there's a couple nuances, and there's also a warning. Word choice. Notice it doesn't say criticize someone who's caught in sin. It doesn't say shame someone or threaten hellfire to someone who's caught in sin. It says restore someone who's caught in sin. And that is a big, big difference. Biblical correction is not just pointing out sin in somebody. Quite honestly, most people can do that. They shouldn't sleep together before that they're married, or he shouldn't use that language, or she's being really selfish right now. Okay, those may be correct and important statements, even important areas of of ethics and holiness that we all need to care about, and we do. But if we stop at just pointing out someone's sin, we're not actually helping them. Sometimes we're actually just feeling morally superior, and other times we're sinning as well because we're gossiping and slandering behind people's backs. It's a lot of things, but it's not producing more righteousness or holiness in anyone. See, biblical correction is restoring someone who's caught in sin. This is someone that God loves. They're in trouble because of some of their choices, whether knowingly or unknowingly. They're going down a path that leads to brokenness. It's probably already resulting in some brokenness in their relationships, and it could be devastating down the line. So my Role, my responsibility, and yours as well, is to discern, pray, ask God, how can I help them and how can I truly restore them? Now, it's probably going to still involve you pointing out someone's sin. That is a part of the discipleship process, but it will be to their face, not behind their backs. That's a primary sin, I think, in our particular culture and time is gossip and slander. It's going to be to someone's face, not behind their backs. And that is only the beginning. Pointing out someone's sin is easy. Restoring people is not. Restoring people is a process. I love that word restore. It's such a Jesus-y word. And I love the symbolism that it evokes. Um, I was talking before the gathering. You guys probably uh, know this already, but we inherited this building from the church who built it, First Christian Church, in 1940. This is when they built this place, and we love this building. It's a super classic sort of, you know, 20th century chapel style or whatever, and it was a huge answer to prayer because we really wanted to be on this end of town, and there were very few spaces where we could gather, and then this place just kind of fell into our laps because the Lord was wanting to bless us and answer our prayer. But when we moved in, there were like so many things that needed um, addressing. There were so many things that were broken. There were decades of deferred maintenance and mold in the kitchen, no ADA access, and many other things like that. Like, You've heard me talk about this because I think I'm traumatized by it. But there was, a, uh, there was a Sunday where the sewer line exploded. And I can't get it out of my mind, like cleaning that up. I had to throw out my shoes that afternoon. That was brutal. So the last several years, we've been restoring it. 
to its former glory. It's been a headache, it's been expensive, but it's been super rewarding. And you all have been a huge part of making this place what it is. And one day our dream is to have it fully restored as a community-wide house of prayer and many other things. But in the meantime, we're meeting here as it's a work in progress. And most of you are like totally on board with it. You actually kind of like it. But it is funny how so many people will come up to us at at one point or another and be like, you know, the parking lot here is terrible. And you go, "Uh uh-huh, yep. And And you know, the bathrooms, they're really small. I go, yep, they are that for sure. And you know that, that window from 1940? It's got a crack in it. And I go, yes, absolutely. What I feel like saying sometimes is, is there a question here? Or are you just like logging a complaint? It's like, got it. Not nice. So uh, there, yeah, there, there are like 20 things that you can see that need fixing and like 50 things that you can't see that also need fixing. Pointing them out is not actually restoring the building. Restoring the building. And... If this is coming off as like a passive-aggressive jive, that's not the point. Really, it's not the point. Restoring the building is when people like Matt or Daniel or Steve or Don or Dolores or Rich or my dad, Lewis, or many others of you who come up to me and say, hey, I noticed that this is a problem. Is there a plan to fix it? I go, yeah, kind of, you know, the pirate's back order, or the contractor's super expensive, or I tried and failed and couldn't quite do it. That's happened a lot. And so then you, you because you're generous in spirit and you realize that I need help and I'm not a great project manager, manager at times, you go, I, I thought that might have been the issue. You know what? I've got a lot of experience in that area. I've got the tools. I, I, I think I can probably handle this. I got some time. Can I come, this in, come in this weekend and fix it? That's restoring the building, and it's glorious, and you guys are incredible. So we're at where we're at today because over 100, it's got to be over 100 of you who've given of your time, your skill, your money, all of it, to make what we've done here so far possible. And there's still a ways to go, but we're well on our way to being fully restored. And again, if you're wondering, yes, there is a list of projects that are pending, and no, I didn't bring this up to make you feel bad, um, and I'm not going to twist your arm, but if you do have skills and you do want to help, I will certainly not turn it down. Restoration is more than pointing out what's broken. It's actually investing in the solution. Francis Frangipane writes, we will never become holy by criticizing others, nor is anyone brought nearer to God through finding fault. Indeed, speak out against unrighteousness, but be motivated by the love of Jesus. Remember, it's written, we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. So in the kingdom of God, unless you are first committed to die for people, you are not permitted to judge them. Amen. So restoring someone who's caught in sin involves caring enough to invest beyond pointing out their fault. It means saying the hard thing well. It means being present. It means showing them the way to life. And it will definitely cost you something. Correction without your presence makes just everyone feel small and defeated. You can get that on the internet for nothing. Man, criticism is cheap. It's everywhere. But correction with your wise presence is an opportunity for real restoration. Earlier this year, my dad, which I think he's going to be at the next gathering, but my dad, Lewis, sat me down for coffee, and there was like something going on in our family, and he like gently uh, but directly 
corrected me about something. And he wrote it down and he gave it to me. And he was right. Or he was mostly right. Okay, fine. He was right. He was actually right. And in his letter, he, he just challenged me to grow. He's like, Andrew, I don't know if you see this, but this is something that I've seen. And I want to grow. And I think you need to grow in this too. It was exactly what I needed. And you need that kind of correction and that kind of restoration as well. But there's a condition. The condition is this. You who live by the Spirit should restore people gently. So most everyone is probably capable of pointing out people's fault. Again, I'm on record now like seven times saying that's actually kind of easy. Pointing out fault is easy. Not everyone is capable of restoring people who are caught in sin. Why not? Well, think about the symbol that I just gave you, our building. If I had rewired this building for electrical, would you be comfortable with that? I know I wouldn't be. My friend Allie, uh, who leads this ministry in Brazil, she asked me to speak at a seminar the next time I'm in Brazil. And she said, you know, other than Bible and theology, what are your other skills? Before she could finish her question, I said, nothing. This is it. Like, I can't lose this job. I have no other qualifications. And it's not a joke, <laughs> it's real. <laughs> so not everyone is capable of restoring someone caught in sin because not everyone is living by the Spirit. Not everyone is walking by the Spirit. Not everyone's filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Not everyone's filled with the character traits of Jesus. And if you yourself are not walking free from sinful patterns, how can you possibly restore someone else who is as well? Matthew chapter 15, Jesus' disciples come up to him after a message and say, hey, did you know, literally, this is a verbatim quote, did you know that the Pharisees, they're offended by what you said? They are not happy with you, man. And Jesus said, ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they both fall into a ditch. Very straightforward from Jesus. So the condition to restoring others is that you yourself are living by the Spirit. Hint, hint, Galatians chapter 5, like what we just spent four weeks talking about. Check out the podcast if you missed it. The condition to restoring others is that you are living by the Spirit, meaning you are daily bought in to Jesus' strategy for Christ's likeness. You're daily in the scriptures. You're daily in prayer and growing in prayer. You're in a community rhythm. You're modeling his lifestyle. You're practicing hospitality and generosity when that's who you are then you become a useful, spiritually insightful guide from within the community to help restore others who are also caught in sin and in process. And there are so many of you here in the room who are already there. And of course, you're still in process. But today, already, you have a lot of spiritual insight, a lot of spiritual wisdom that, that you can offer that will set people free. And you're a gift to the community. Please don't go anywhere. Please stay here. Please invest yourself in restoring others. Others of you are, are not there yet. You're just at an earlier stage in your discipleship to Jesus. And by the way, this is not an age thing. You can be young, and you can be walking in the Spirit, and you can be old and have little to no spiritual wisdom at all. It has to do with how consistent and intentional you are in your discipleship. And if you're not there yet, that is not to discourage you or to excuse you from restoring others. This is where you will one day be. I wish I could um, sometimes say to young men, but young women as well, but particularly young men, do not be lazy in your discipleship or pass the mutual responsibility that we all share to only the ones who are willing to accept the challenge. Get going 
walk by the Spirit, repattern your life after Him, and in time, you will become that guide to someone who needs to be restored. Is that, you tracking? You with me? Awesome. So that's the condition. The nuance is that we need to do it gently. We need to do it gently. Why? Because Jesus is gentle, right? He's brash with the corrupt religious leaders. We've seen that time and again. But when he's with the prostitute, who's poor in spirit and is eager for salvation, it's a completely different story. He's gracious. He's kind. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He's quick to forgive. And again, this is how Jesus wants you to restore people the same way that he restores people, the same way you receive the gentle correction and the mercy of God, he wants you to extend that to others. And if you're wise, you're already living this way. Now, um, very quickly, a brief little side note. I'm sure you're familiar with a style of Christianity that emphasizes like moralism and sometimes dogmatism without grace or even tact. And in this kind of church, or that, excuse me, that kind of church, like rule keeping and knowledge are like currency. That's how you gain status and attracts people by the thousands still. I think it's because it's educated and disciplined. People can like figure it out and get comfortable quickly. But the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So it's very possible, and I've seen it, and I'm sure you have as well, for people to gain knowledge and a lot of knowledge and just become prideful about it. You're talking about Jesus, but you sound like the jerk on MSNBC or Fox or whatever. You know what I mean? That's not building anyone up. Scripture says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So wisdom, on the other hand, is directly connected to how deeply the way of Jesus' love has made its way into every part of your life. See, our best ideas are, are probably forgettable, maybe before you even leave the room today. But hopefully, the legacy of our loving actions and our gentleness will outlive us. All this reminds me of um, the support challenge matrix that a friend of mine, Michael, just introduced me to recently. It's a leadership principle, and it looks like this. Um, if you want to motivate your people, you need to support and challenge them. And all challenge, and people just wind up feeling dominated and manipulated and afraid. And if you offer only support to people, and people feel like you're just handling them with kid gloves, and it leads to, like, entitlement and distrust. If you don't offer any support or low support and low challenge, it just leads to a total breakdown in the mission of what you're doing and the relationship. There's no inspiration. It's only apathy. But if you offer high challenge and high support, both in tandem, it leads to, um, in this matrix, what's called liberation. People feel like they're actually uh, mattering and that they bring something that matters and they're being pushed to reach their full potential. Just think about your best boss or your best coach or your best teacher. This is how they led you. They supported you well, but they also challenged you as well. And this is a management tool, but I think it works in the church and it works too in our discipleship. You are being called up. You are being challenged by God because you are deeply loved to live a life worthy of your calling. You're not destined to sort of spin out in marginalized sinful patterns for the rest of your life. The Lord is rescuing and setting you free from that, and he's offering you his support in the context of the Christian community. Make sense? So 
that we need to be sure that as we restore others, we're doing it with high challenge, but also high support. The end of verse one says, watch yourselves or you're gonna be tempted. Watch yourselves or you will be tempted. Um, there's at least a couple things for us to notice here. First, this is a warning to be self-aware, to be self-aware about our own temptations and about our own weaknesses. So um, Paul's, Paul's saying like, hey, if you're gonna take on the responsibility and the leadership of restoring people who've gotten off track, and according to this verse, you should do that. But if you're going to do that, then you need to be careful not to fall into the trap of feeling morally superior because we're all tempted no matter how wise or mature or disciplined we are. Remember, Jesus taught us in um, uh, Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that's in your own? How can you say to your brother, let's take the speck out of your eye, when there's still that log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. I love that verse. And it's kind of confronting, Notice he doesn't say, don't address the speck in your brother's eye. He does. He's, you're actually called to address the speck in your brother's eye, but you need to address the log in yours first. And I think inherent within that is another layer of wisdom, which is to maintain a balance of restoring others and then also reflecting on your own weaknesses and temptations, right? So I am not some completed work. You are not some completed work that is now given over to just restoring others. No, we always need to be watchful, pay attention to the warning signs, and notice the temptation in our own heart and our own shadow sides and weaknesses and everything else. The next action item for you to write down, this is the second and last, by the way, is to carry each other's burdens. Verse 2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. It's a loaded term, as I'm sure you're aware especially if you've been here throughout the series. Paul is introducing a lot of paradox into this letter, this part of the letter. That word burden in, in verse 2, carry each other's burdens, that word burden uh, is, is the Greek word bare, and it refers to an extremely heavy weight. And as I was preparing for this message, I had like a flashback, sort of a memory to when I was in college, and I went backpacking with a bunch of friends. And we took this one guy, a really great guy named Adam. It was his first time backpacking ever. And he's a good enough guy, but he was complaining the whole time. Hey, this backpack is way too heavy. It's like hurting my shoulders. And then he even dared to ask, are we there yet? Which, <laughs> when I'm on a road trip with my kids, I have enough trouble with that question. I have a hard time having patience. But that was like a grown man on a three-day backpacking trip. That just like pushed me over the edge. And so, um, so anyways, as retribution for being annoying, every time we would take a break, one of the guys would distract him and I would sneak a rock into his pack just to make his load just that much heavier. And by the end of our hike, it was probably like five or six maybe rocks. And that was a heavy burden at that point. That was an extremely heavy weight. And if memory serves, when he found it, he started throwing the rocks at me because he was that upset, which I probably deserved. If we were good friends, we would have helped carry his weight, not make it heavier. Um, but, but like, in context, carrying each other's burdens means that, yeah, you're, you, take, you take responsibility for the heavy burdens of the people around you. Another way of saying that is you take responsibility for the spiritual maturity and the vitality of your community. And when someone's burden is extra heavy, you're there to help 
shoulder it. You're not just pointing out the problems. Oh, yeah, that's a problem. You're involved in restoring us all. You consider it a part of your vocation, literally why you're here on this earth. Part of the reason why is to come alongside and help shoulder heavy burdens of your brothers and sisters who are in crisis. Just this week, one of my closest friends here at Riverbend, his brother, 38 years old, was just diagnosed with a scary, um, hard-to-treat form of lymphoma. And they know very little, and we don't know how bad it is yet, but their family is in crisis right now. The next day, I heard from another dear friend and sister in our community who we dearly love who said something very similar. I don't know a lot. I haven't seen the oncologist yet, but I've just been diagnosed with cancer. It's so heavy. This is heavy news. And we need to be the kinds of people who bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. There's a a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that's outside of our control. And sometimes life just feels wild and dark and scary. But here's what I do know. That God is near to the brokenhearted. That we will pray with faith and fervency for God to do his healing work that only he can do. And it is our job to carry our sisters and our brothers' burdens. If we know anything about our vocation in this life, that's what it is. We carry each other's burdens. This is our work to do. And I promise, as I have more information about what's going on with these people that I can share, I promise that I will share it with you and give you opportunity and ways to help. Now, I know how some of this can just feel a bit overwhelming. You might be thinking, my burden's heavy enough. It's hard for me to consider carrying someone else's burden. And I can see where you're coming from with that. Every day you are bombarded by bad news from every corner of the world. Right? There's a war in Ukraine, a flood in Kentucky, a plane crash in Idaho, monkeypox is now everywhere apparently. Um, and there's been several shootings this week too. And that's just a fraction of the headlines that you've read this week. This leads to what I call empathy fatigue. There's a lots of positives to the information age and the age of the iPhone, but constant daily reminders of the horrors of humanity is not one of them. It's actually costing us something on a human level. It's much more than your brain can understand, let alone your heart have compassion for, much less do something about. It's inhuman, the amount of bad news that you are taking in on a daily basis. So as a survival mechanism, we subconsciously grow numb to most of the world's problems. Not because we're heartless, but because we cannot possibly process it all. And so we read an article in the morning about a bomb going off and it killing women and children. People who God dearly loves. And then we read an ad from Home Depot. And then we read who the Seahawks traded this week. And then we get a text from a friend. And three minutes have passed and already we have no space for the loss of life in the Ukraine. And that would be horrible and and, and bad enough, I think. But I think this affects our ability to empathize with humans in our face-to-face life as well. People who we can actually show up for, people who we can actually affect change for, people who can actually shoulder burdens for, we're growing numb to them too. So what our society has done is we've outsourced to the heart types, right? The 15% of you here in the room whose superpower is compassion, like my wife Grace. That's like who she is. She can do a lot of things, but one thing she can't do is not care about people, which I think is a double negative. So the English teachers in the, wor- in the room, please don't judge me for that or fail me or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> so 
in a world of empathy, empathy fatigue, we, we punt or we outsource to the heart types, the people who always care and always pick up people's burdens. And listen, I, I, I pray and I listen to a lot of people in our church. And at all times, my little crew that I'm doing spiritual direction with is made up of two groups of people. People who are in crisis, who often feel like alone and unsupported except for maybe one or two people. And then the other group of people that I typically sit with are heart types, people whose superpower is compassion and they're completely overworked because they're carrying way more than their fair share of other people's pain. And so they are becoming burnt out by this. And if you're in a service type profession or if you're like an EMT or a nurse or a firefighter or a counselor or somebody like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. These people are always going to carry people's burdens. They can't stop doing it and they do fantastic work but it's exhausting because there's always more people who are in crisis, who need support coming down the line. And because of our empathy fatigue, a lot of us are checked out to this problem. And it's, our t it's time for us to wake up to it again and to start shouldering and carrying each other's burdens. And I think there's an answer, um, and I could go on and on about this, which we don't have time for, but I think the answer is actually quite simple. Sociologists and anthropologists tell us that prior to uh, the modern era, humans lived normally within like a 10 mile radius of their birthplace, and they networked with at most 200 people. And I think that there's something that's like natural and human about that. You can't actually carry the burdens of seven and a half billion people, you can't do that. But you probably can be connected to and meaningfully contribute to a community of a couple hundred. Now, you're not gonna be best friends with everyone, you're definitely not gonna be getting together with everybody once a week, but you can be a blessing to them and you can reasonably be expected to carry and shoulder their burdens in times of crisis. Now, I'm not saying we don't need to be in tune with and aware of the global problems that are going on as well. Please don't bury your head in the sand, that's not the point of this message. Um, but discern where you need to devote your very limited resources and where you can affect real change. And that's where you begin, bearing one another's burden. And I would argue that out of all of the things that you can offer someone in crisis, your prayers and your presence is probably the most healing thing. Let me qualify that. You walking in step with the Spirit, filled with the character traits of Jesus, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You filled with the spirit and the character traits of Jesus. That is the most healing thing that you can offer your friends, your sisters, your brothers in crisis. And you're just there and you're reminding them, probably not with any words, or if, if, if words maybe only a couple, that God loves them, that God sees them, that you're with them, that they're not alone and that you're here to serve. When Grace and I, seven years ago, lost our twin girls at, at birth, um, some of you were around in those days and part of our family network at the time. And during that time, it was those of you who showed up with acts of generosity and kindness, words of encouragement, even like works of art, like some of you, it's just so awesome. It's those of you who showed up in that way who convinced us that God is who he says he is, and that he is near to the brokenhearted, and he is a God of comfort. And when they were there shouldering the burden with us, they were agents of God's healing for us. And you can be that to your sisters and brothers in crisis as well. And this is what Paul says is fulfilling the law of Christ. 
That fulfills the law of Christ. Much more I wish I could say on that, but the invitation is for us to buy in. Buy into this law of Christ, to restore people gently, to shoulder people's burdens, not to punt to the heart types in the room, the people who always step up. You can learn from them, but don't leave it to them. Follow their example. And uh, like people like my wife, you, you know people like this. Learn from them, but don't leave it to them. Now, I know that some of this has challenged you, um, and maybe you're feeling sort of overwhelmed by the challenge or something like that. I don't know. I don't know how you're experiencing this. Maybe you're also feeling that, like, hey, your burden is so heavy. Maybe you're the one who's in crisis right now, and you're the one who's feeling alone, and you're thinking to yourself, how could I possibly actually shoulder someone else's burden? Well, I think that's a really fair point, and if that's where you are today, there's zero judgment from me or anyone on our team towards you. In fact, we just want to be there in support of you. And also, remember, this is a strategy that is first and foremost about walking in step with the Spirit. He is with you, and He wants to empower you along the way. You're not gritting this out through your willpower. That doesn't work. Trust me, if that worked, I I would know, because I've been doing it that way for a long time, but that's not how it works. We are filled with the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit. He empowers us, and that's a good thing. So to close, I just want to teach you um, a short um, prayer rhythm that I really truly believe will, will help you as you begin to shoulder one another's burdens. Um, this is a prayer rhythm I use in spiritual direction a lot. It's when you come in to receive prayer from us. This is what we often do is take you through a, a rhythm of prayer. And the best way for me to teach it to you is to just show it to you. So we're going to take a few minutes and just pray right now, which is perfect. That's what we always do on Sundays anyways. Um, and I call this rhythm uh, casting your cares on the Lord, which some of you might find cheesy or whatever. But it's in the Bible. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now you feel guilty for thinking it was cheesy, don't you? <laughs> this is a rhythm that I pray probably daily And then I pray with others many, many times. And it's an important thing for us to do, is to recognize that at times we are carrying a weight, we are carrying a burden that we can't ourselves shoulder. And it's actually too much for me and for you and even all of us together. So we go to the Lord and we cast our anxieties, we cast our cares on him. So this is a weird kind of dichotomy or paradox. Which is it? Are we supposed to carry each other's burdens or are we supposed to cast our burdens on the Lord? It's, it's both and. So here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to just like stand to our feet together and we're going to enter into this prayer rhythm. And if you're new to praying or if you're new to the way of Jesus, um, please don't feel any pressure or manipulation in this at all. Um, this is just a normal part of doing life with Jesus and enter into it as, as comfortable as, as you are. So what we want to do is just begin by closing our eyes and taking in a nice deep breath. And if you're like living in the past or living in the future, just come to this present moment. And as we welcome in the presence of God, I want to encourage you to just envision yourself approaching the throne of grace. This is God's throne. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says you can approach the throne of grace with confidence 
to find grace and help in a time of need. And so I just want to encourage you to visualize, imagine yourself approaching God's throne room. This is where you belong. If you are a son or a daughter of God, you are in the kingdom of God. This is where you belong. Is with him. As you begin to image God on his throne, I just want to encourage you to notice his countenance. Notice how he's coming to you. Notice he's not afraid. He's not overwhelmed. He's not anxious. Instead, just notice how he's coming to you in his love and his grace. See, God doesn't have to be worried. God is never overwhelmed because he has all authority and power. The scripture describes him as sovereign, meaning he rules over the universe and he's, in a word, in control. So therefore, he doesn't have to be stressed or anxious or overwhelmed. And as you come into his presence as his daughter and as his son, you don't have to be either. And now as you're there with him, I just want you to notice what is the burden that you've been carrying? What is that heavy thing? It might feel like a heavy weight in your arms, like a, like a rock that's digging in and it's uncomfortable and it's painful and you can't bear it. I just want you for a moment to ask yourself, what is this burden? See if you can name that burden. Is it the diagnosis? Is it the broken relationship? Is it the angst? Is it the depression? Is it the things that are sort of unspoken but you just know are deeply there? It's a heavy burden. Now, as we turn our eyes to the Lord, I just invite you to ask, God, what do you want me to do with this? What do you want me to do with this? In the language of 1 Peter 5, the encouragement is to cast it at him. Cast that burden, cast that worry, cast that care on him. So make this as a conscious decision. You're saying, I'm actually going to, for the moment, I'm going to let this worry down. I'm going to let this burden down. And I want you to just, again, we're, this is metaphor, but just imagine yourself letting go of the rock and see it hit the floor. that God is perfectly capable of carrying it. He's perfectly capable of carrying you. So if you have any sort of resistance in your heart to this process, no judgment, just notice that that's coming. And just let the peace of Christ just push out any cynicism and instead just kind of lean in to that today.
hopefully what you're beginning to experience is just God's peace coming over you. And maybe there's still other things that we haven't even addressed yet. That'll be for the future, but for right now, just empty those hands of the burdens that are too heavy to carry and just instead receive like the warm embrace of God. Man, there's so much biblical metaphor about God coming and like enveloping us with his comforting love. So like when you're done being busy, carrying weights that are too heavy, now all of a sudden your attention and your focus are on him and all of a sudden your arms are open and ready to receive that comforting love from him. And so in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I just pray that right now in this room, as your arms are empty from carrying all these burdens, that the love of God would just come rushing in and around you and enveloping you and making you feel safe as you truly are. Nothing, no one can separate, take you from his love. And right now is a moment where you can come and find peace and hope in time of need. Last part of this rhythm is to just invite God to give you anything else that he wants to give you. And I know I've said this before, but I just feel like the word peace is, um, is just for some people here. By that I mean the flourishing, the shalom of God. So I just encourage you to participate, to just say, yeah, I want God's peace. I want his hope, I want his comfort. So God, this is what we desire, this is what we want from you. And Holy Spirit, we're coming to you now and we're responding to you in worship. We thank you for the truth and we know that there's more for us. So we're not gonna like teleport out of this moment. We're gonna stay right here and we're gonna worship you. You have our full attention. You have all of our focus and we are ready to worship and to praise. So guys, I'm gonna say amen. You're gonna stop hearing me talking here and we're gonna go right into singing. But, but please don't let this moment pass you by without entering in fully into praise and worship. God is here, God is with you, his presence is surrounding you. You are safe with him. He is capable of carrying your burdens. He has all authority and power, he is sovereign, he's with you. So for the moment, what we have to do is to praise and to worship. So let's respond in true praise and worship today. Can we do that? Also, during the next song, as we're singing, feel free to sing out nice and loud, even as you come forward to grab the bread and the cup. Um, where we take communion together weekly. Come up for come forward, grab the bread of the cup, then go back to your seat. We'll take it together in a minute. Also, if you need prayer, go to the praying hands at the back of the room. We'd love to pray for you. I have a feeling that we only got started with some of you who are carrying heavy burdens today. And our team would love to just come around you, shoulder you, uh, shoulder burdens with you and take you into God's presence. God, you are King, you are Lord, and we love you. Pray that you be honored and glorified through our praises this morning. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.